morning. Let us read the scriptures together. In the black Bible in front of you, turn to page 960. From John 17, 20 to 26. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, Father, as are in me as I am in you. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the word world may believe you sent me. I have given the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and that I may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name's my name's Kevin, and it's my uh, great privilege this morning to take this uh, part of the passage of Scripture that Andrew has read for us this morning and to uh, share a few thoughts of what uh, and, and explain it uh, for us as to what the Lord would have for us. But as we do that, would you we unite our hearts in prayer uh, together? So, Father in heaven. Uh, I'm thankful for this group of men and women and boys and girls gathered in this building this morning. Father, that uh, you have called us, you've called us by name, uh, that you know each one uh, gathered here, that you, they have come, we have come, Father, at your own invitation. And uh, we come, Father, to worship you together this morning. And we pray for your work among us as a, as a people, that, Lord, we would be a people who are one, we, we pray, Father, that we would indeed be the answer to the prayer of Jesus, the one who answers all our prayers. Father, we pray uh, for those among us who, uh, who have various struggles of uh, various kinds. And, uh, and we, we pray, Father, that we would be the kind of church where those who are going through trials would experience uh, some of your love and your kindness expressed through one another. And we pray, Father, together for uh, Arnold and Val Bickard and their family. And, uh, Father, we're, we're calling out to you as uh, our Heavenly Father to have mercy on them, to remember them, to comfort them. Father, we're thankful for how you've answered prayers even this week. And Matthew's blood counts have, 
have, have risen and he's re- receiving treatment again. And we pray and unite our hearts together in the name of Jesus that, that his little body would be freed and healed from every leukemia cell. That, Father, at the very cellular level, you would bring healing in his body. And we pray, Father, that the day would come where he's given that clean bill of health and where they can put leukemia in the background and, uh, and walk forward with, uh, with health and with freedom. We pray, Lord, that you would provide for them in the midst of that trial. Father, show us how, how to love and how to care, how to come alongside, to remind us to pray, to lift them up to you, their, their good Father. We pray for those struggling with uh, cancer treatments, those struggling with mental health, those, uh, Lord, who, who, have, uh, who have burdens that are unseen. Father, would you be the healer, the provider for us? Send us out uh, as we leave this place later on this, this morning, Father. We want to go and be your hands and feet. And so, uh, Lord, would you equip us to do the work of Jesus in this world uh, through our worship. And as we come to your word, Father, we say, give us ears to hear your voice. May, may I decrease and Jesus, may you increase um, so that uh, Jesus, you would be seen as a hero uh, this morning. So become famous, Lord, through your word as, as I, I seek to um, proclaim it now in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Together we have been walking through this great uh, chapter in uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 17, uh, in which uh, Jesus uh, approaches his Father and he says, Father, the hour has come. My hour has come, which for Jesus means his finest hour, the hour of his death, the hour in which uh, Jesus' entire life was pointing to. He says, the hour has come. And then he, he prays. He prays for himself and prays that he would, uh, would uh, rightly show the, the Father's glory even to the very end of his life. And then he spends really the rest of the chapter after those first five verses of praying for himself. He prays for uh, his disciples, his followers, those in the room. And then uh, here, as we read this morning, there's another transition in his prayer. He says, I'm not praying only for these. I'm not praying only for my followers who are in the room. I'm also praying for all those who would come to believe in me through their word. So uh, through the word of the apostles, what word? We read about that in verse 8. I have given them the words you gave me. They received them, known that for certain that I have come from you. The disciples of Jesus, his followers, his apostles, his sent ones, received the word of God from Jesus. And now Jesus has, uh, has said that they will, they will teach his word and others will receive that word as be, coming from Jesus and will become followers of Jesus as well. That's how you and I are in this room together today is that uh, others have told others have, have told others that word, that truth of Jesus and have come to believe on him and come to receive it as uh, Jesus' own word, as Jesus sent from the Father and have come to believe on him. And so Jesus is actually, he's literally praying for you and I uh, in this passage. And he prays really throughout his prayer, intermingled throughout his prayer, is a prayer for the unity of his disciples. He prays that his people, his kids, his followers, his disciples would be one, that we'd be united, that we'd have an uncommon unity. 
throughout this prayer. Now, we're going to really zero in on that this morning as uh, here in verses 20 to 23, he really focuses in and says, if I could if I could boil my prayer down, I'm praying like we talked about last week for their sanctification. That is, they would become holy. They would become more and more like me. They'd express my character. And I'm praying that they would be united. I'm praying that they'd be one. I'm, I'm praying for an uncommon unity among uh, my disciples. Now, what kind of oneness? What kind of unity? What does that mean? That we just all get along? That we're one big happy family? That there's no tensions, no disagreements? Is that what he's, he's saying? Well, he's praying for, in fact, he describes the kind of unity that he's after, that he's, that he's, that he's desiring for us. He says he's praying for that we would experience a unity that is modeled after the unity that he has with his Father. Right? You see that in verse verse 21. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they be also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. I want them to have a unity that is like the unity, Father, that you and I have experienced. Jesus prays. Or what kind of unity does the Father and the Son have and the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son? What kind of unity does that we, we call the Godhead or the Trinity, this three and oneness of God, the three persons of God. What kind of unity do they have? Well, we, we know that they're not the same person. They're not that there's a distinction in the Godhead. Theologians would say that the father is not the son and the son is not the father and the father is not the Holy Spirit and the son is not the Holy Spirit, that there's distinct persons. And so the, fa- the son is praying to the father. The father sends the son. There's distinction, and yet they are so united. Jesus can can teach his disciples in John chapter 14. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. We're so united so that uh, the work that I am doing, Jesus teaches in John's gospel, the work that I am doing, it's like the Father is doing it. We're so united that the work... And the words that I teach are so much in line with the heart of my Father, it's as if the Father is doing them. And it's as if the Father is speaking them. He's given me these words, and I'm speaking them. We're distinct, and yet we're, we're of one heart, one mind, one purpose. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is sent to do the Father's will, and yet he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own will. He's doing the Father's will, and yet he has his own will, and he is, he's laying his life down of his own will. As the church of Jesus, we are called to exist in that kind of oneness. oneness. Distinction, we're, di- we're, we're different, we're distinct people, and yet one, one heart, oneness and in, in unity in our submission to one another, in our communication with one another, in honor and respect for one another. One in purpose, one in love, one in mind, one in heart, one in purpose. One in united in our submission to the word which we've received, the words of eternal life. Now when we think about unity, think about oneness, group of people, we might think, well, what that means is is there's an absence of disagreement. We just need to agree on everything all the time. Is that, is that what the New Testament is uh, 
priming us for? I don't think so. In fact, if I take the if we take the teaching of the New Testament, the, the the New Testament tells us that we should not be surprised if we don't all reach the same conclusions on a host of issues, on a host of things, on, on all kinds of things, on style of worship, on philosophy of teaching on the end times. My goodness, on which programs, on leadership that often. God's children will be committed to Him, committed to His Word, and yet reach different conclusions on all kinds of things. Take a, take your, take a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Love the sound of pages turning. Some of you are swiping and you're missing that beautiful sound. That's fine. Look at Romans 4. Isn't it nice to have Bibles right in front of us? Isn't that good? It's good. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And that we live in a country where we can have as many copies as we want. Romans 14. Listen, listen to this. Paul's saying it's going it's to be okay if you disagree strongly about some things. In fact, there's a great ministry opportunity... If you disagree strongly, he says this, 14 verse 1 of Romans 14, page 1007 on the, the, our Bibles here. Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything. Well, one who is weak eats only vegetables. He's weak because he eats only vegetables, Right? So if you're vegan, we accept you. We accept you. We know you're weak. We know you're probably really tired today. and It's okay. You're welcome here. Honestly, welcome here, vegans. One who eats, he's not, what he's talking about is some, uh, so there is a disagreement in the church. So uh, meat in the culture was... Uh, first offered up and sacrificed and blessed to the pagan gods. And some Christians says, well, we should abstain from that kind of meat because it's been offered and, 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 and set apart, consecrated, if you will, to these pagan gods. And other Christians would say, yeah, but they're not real. So nothing really changed about that meat. So I can eat that steak? No problem. So some had a conscience and a conviction that we, should, as Christians, real followers of Jesus, should abstain from it, and others have the conviction: doesn't matter. We're free to eat it. Okay, so there, that's the issue that Paul's talking about here. But he he broadens it and says this applies to all kinds of disputable matters. Where was I? Verse three: One who eats must not look down on one who doesn't eat, and one who does not eat must not judge one who does. There's, there's our, our two common reactions. When we have a different conviction, I'm going to judge, judge the person who acts differently or look down on them. Think I'm going to feel superior or I'm going to judge you. Well, you're obviously not as serious about your faith as I am. Or you look down on them. Here's Mr. Legalist again. 
Always judging people. Here we go. Keep going. Who are you to judge? Oh, no, no, no. I missed something here. Verse 3. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge one who does. Why? Because God accepted him, has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than others. Some people think the Sabbath is important or other holidays are important. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it's for the Lord that he does not eat it. And he gives thanks to God. None of us lives for himself. No one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. What's Paul saying? He says, there's going to be all kinds of issues that arise in the church. And you're going to come to different convictions on them. But he says, he doesn't say it doesn't matter. He doesn't say be wishy-washy about it. He says, get a flippin' conviction, right? Be fully convinced in your own mind. Get a conviction. Study it. Think it through. Get a conviction. But then don't judge someone who's different than you. Don't look down on someone who lands in a different place than you do. But get a conviction. Take it seriously. Get passionate about it. That sounds like a recipe for disaster, though, doesn't it? Get passionate about it. Get a conviction. Be fully convinced. And be fully convinced that the Lord has accepted both of you. And so who are you to reject the one that God has welcomed? The one that God has accepted? How could you break fellowship with someone whom God has welcomed and accepted? So don't judge. Those people don't really love Jesus. Don't despise. I'm so tired of that guy. But verse 8, live for the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. Paul teaches something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 30. And talking about the similar issue. If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? It says, be careful to take away things from people who are seeking to glorify God in that thing. I think that's the principle there. Be careful to take away things from people who are seeking to bring glory to God in these things. Sounds great, right? In theory, let's let the rubber hit the road a little bit. That'll be fine, right? Let's let the rubber hit the road. It sounds great in theory, but let's talk about some of these issues. Let's talk about some of the, the things over which we can have disagreements, but in answer to the prayer of Jesus, we should not break fellowship over. I'll start off with a bang. Women in church leadership. There are some in this room who, because of their serious study of the Scripture, 
feel like and believe that uh, church leadership is restricted to men only. And they believe that because they're followers of Jesus and their conviction to the scriptures. There are others in this room who, because of their reading of the scripture, because they're followers of Jesus and they take his word seriously, believe that church leadership is open to both men and women. And I believe Paul would say, don't despise the other and don't judge the other. Paul would say, I think, you're not the judge. If you believe that it's restricted to men and, and you're interacting and with brothers and sisters who believe that the Lord has opened eldership in the church to both men and women, you don't have to say, oh, these people don't take the scripture seriously. They're just sellouts giving in to every cultural whim. What's next? They have no backbone. Just giving into culture. And those who believe that church leadership is open to both men and women do not have to say to those who believe it's restricted to men, oh, patriarchal society, male chauvinists, just grasping onto power. Friends, is it possible that we could land on different places because of our discipleship to Jesus. And my conviction is, is that it is. It may be that some hold one view or the other because they're a male chauvinist. But that's not for me to judge. It could be that some hold this view because they don't have the backbone and conviction to actually follow what the Scripture says, and they just say, it's easier, let's just go along with the whims of culture. But that's not for me to judge. But this I do know. I have books on this, on this particular issue by people who take God's Word so seriously and have given their life to studying it, who believe it's authoritative, who believe it's... Uh, inerrant and who because of their study of the text land in in two different places Cornerstone believes that church that the Lord has opened church leadership open to both men and women and yet we do not will not despise those who believe otherwise and we and actually am fully convinced that we should not break fellowship over an issue like that. In fact, I believe our gospel is too small. Our gospel is too small if we have to break fellowship over non-essential matters. The gospel of Jesus brought Jew and Gentile together. The, the scriptures say that it was, that's a mystery that the angels long to look into and say, how in the world is God going to reconcile Jew and Gentile together? But the gospel is big, big enough to bring Jews and Gentiles together. And so the gospel is big, big enough to bring complementarians and egalitarians together. The gospel is big enough to bring the drum guy and the choir guy together. 
The gospel of Jesus is, is big enough to bring the vegan and the carnivore together, to bring the raised hands guy and the more reserved guy together. The gospel of Jesus is big enough to bring the KJV guy and the ESV guy and the CSB guy and the NIV guy and the NLT guy and to bring us all together in Christ. The gospel of Jesus is big enough to bring the Calvinist and the Arminian together. The gospel of Jesus is big enough to bring the jean guy and the suit guy together. Amen. Hallelujah. The gospel of Jesus is, is big enough to bring the homeschool family and the Christian school family and the public school family together. They're, it's big enough to bring the dunker and the sprinkler together. It's big enough. It's great enough. Because that's not what divides us. What, or what's, what unites us. What unites us is that Jesus is Lord, that He's King, that He's died for our sins, that He's risen again, that He has ascended on high, and that He is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And so what unites us is the gospel of Jesus. Not whether we're a gene guy or a drum guy or a choir guy or a ESV guy or a KJV guy. That's not what unites us. What unites us is Jesus in His gospel. Hallelujah. Amen. That's where our oneness is found. Turn to Ephesians 4. You say, well, that's a great idea, Kevin. Where do you get that from? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. One of the great passages on the church. Ephesians 4, verse 11, page 1038. And he himself, Jesus, catch my breath here. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. What unity? The, ver- the list is in verse 6. Verse, uh, sorry, verse 4. There's one body one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Friends, it was hard for me to write that list that I just yelled at you. It was hard for me to write that list because I have convictions, I have thoughts on these things, and I you know what? I think I'm right. I think I'm right. But what is a greater demonstration of the power of the gospel? To love those we agree with or to love through disagreement? Even on things we believe strongly in. A couple thoughts, more thoughts on unity. I haven't even started my sermon yet. Wow. Number, point number one, unity has a cost. Unity has a cost. Unity is costly. The, the church of Jesus... To be one, to be united, to be one in heart, mind, and purpose, and love, and mission. We, we need to love one another. We need to love one another. And, and, and the Apostle Paul says, or Apostle John says, says let's not love in, only in our words, in our talk, but let's love in action and in truth. If you look at the, the church of Jesus, we love with our things, not just with our words. We love with our time. Not just with our words and our, with our emotions. In the early church, when someone was in need of something, the, the church sold things to meet those needs or gave them away. Our world says, be careful who you hang out with. 
Be careful who your friends are. Make sure that they're at the same level as you so that no one asks you for money. Make sure that they're the same dress size as you and the same golf handicap as you so you never feel inferior to them. Make sure that your friends aren't too messed up because then they're just going to always be talking about their problems. You know what you do? You know what happens if, if that's the way you live? When the bottom falls out of your life, no one's there for you. But the church of Jesus loves with a costly love. We love with our time. We love across differences, whether those be generational, economic. We love with our things. And in fact, we become brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, united. That, that's one of the, the big bonds that went off in my life in January of this year. I was, Matt and I spent uh, 10 days in Burundi, the uh, second poorest country in the world. And we spent four days with Burundian pastors of the TBNet, Transform Burundi Network, that we are seeking to raise up and equip and release into ministry for a church planting network and seeing really holistic, gospel-centered churches planted throughout the nation of Burundi. We spent four days learning together and living together and worshiping together, eating meals together. And one of the bombs that went off in my life is that the same truth that was revolutionizing my life was also revolutionizing theirs. We, We have almost nothing in common. There's people that I have almost nothing in common with. The wealth that I enjoy here would boggle their mind. They have no concept of it. They're black, I'm white. Live in totally different climates, totally different cultures, totally different values in those cultures, and yet the same truths about the Lord Jesus is blowing their lives up. It's the same things that's blowing my heart up. Brothers and sisters, that you can get together with people who, in the eyes of this world, you have nothing in common with, but they love Jesus, and you're together. You're together. Unity has a cost. Second thought, to really live this out, unity requires forgiveness. I'm so fascinated by some of these um, lower life forms that have the ability to regenerate themselves. Like, wouldn't that be cool if you cut off your finger and it could grow back? We don't, generally speaking, have that, right? If you cut off your finger, it's gone. If you cut off your leg, it's gone. But like worms, you can cut that sucker in half and it just grows back. Like, that. the Bible says that that character that should characterize our relationships. That our relationships should have the ability to regenerate themselves through reconciliation and forgiveness. That when our relationships are broken or tense, or there's conflict in those relationships, that our relationships should be able to be re- re- um, to reconcile, to regenerate, to become whole again. Through forgiveness. 
Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother and sister, my heavenly father won't forgive you. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray with the audacity of, Father, would you forgive me in the same way that I forgive my brothers and sisters? That's a scary prayer or pray. That's the Lord's Prayer. You've recited that since you were three years old. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Take my Father in heaven. Would you just take my model of forgiveness and just apply that to me between you and me? That's, that's an audacious prayer. When you say, I will not forgive this person, I, I'm going to choose to live in bitterness. You don't, you don't say those words, but you live in them. It's a denial of God's love for you. If you know that you've been forgiven by God, you know, I was God's enemy and he forgave me. How can I feel superior to this person? What I did to the Lord is way less than what they've done to me. I've grieved Jesus way more than this person has grieved me. So how dare I judge when only God is wise enough to actually know what's best for them, to know what they deserve? Friends, if the world that surrounds us does not see oneness, if the world around us does not see the church with the ability to regenerate broken relationships, they have the right to say, I guess Jesus really hasn't come to town. They're no different. Why can you say that, Kevin? Look at verse 21, John 17. Why is, does Jesus pray that we would be one? Why does he pray that we'd be one? Verse 21. May they all be one as you, Father, in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe you sent me. So that the world could see and know that I, Jesus, really am the the Savior of the world. Sent by God on this rescue mission. I want them to know. Look at And he he even tightens the screws even more. He even says them more clearly and more powerfully. Verse 23. I am in them, you are in me, so that they may be completely one. Why? So that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So that the world would know that I, Jesus, have loved the world just as you have loved me, Father. I want the world to know my love. I want the world to know that I love them. How will they know that? By the unity of the church. By the unity of the church. That's why the New Testament is filled. Love one another. Love one another. A new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another. By this, all the world will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. That you love one another over and over and over again, which requires constantly us dying to ourself, a death to self. Friends, that needs to change the way we do friendship. It needs to change the way we do dating and the way we do parenting and the way we do marriage and the way we do neighboring. It needs to change our lives.
Last idea. The unity of the church makes Jesus non-ignorable. The, church, the world will not be able to ignore Jesus if, if, if the world sees a church where relationships can be restored. And a church that's one in mission, one in purpose, one in love. That can accept one another even when we don't agree with one another. I couldn't get past this one word this week. Two-letter word. Two-letter word in this in this text. Verse 23. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as, as, as what? As you have loved me. I want the world to know that the love I have for them is the same kind of love, Father, that you have for me. The love that the Father has for His natural Son is the same love that He has for His adopted sons and daughters. In the same way. God's love for His adopted children is, no, is not diminished one bit in any degree at all just because they're adopted. Imagine... Jesus, he fully does his Father's will. He's obeyed him in every way to the point of death, even death on a cross. He rises again. He ascends back to heaven. Imagine that welcome back to heaven of the Father for his Son. That's your welcome. That's the same welcome you can get. Imagine the, the pride that the Father has in His Son. That's the same pride He has for you. Imagine the commitment that the, the Father has to, to just shower His love on His Son. That's the same commitment to, He has to shower love on you. You see, you won't be able to love anyone completely until you feel completely loved by the Father. You will not be able to love anyone completely until you feel completely loved by the Father. Otherwise, you're going to have to always prove that you're right, to prove that you deserve honor, to prove that you have affirmation, to prove that uh, you make sure that you get the credit you think you deserve until you know that the Father in heaven has crowned you with love and honor. It's the end of defensiveness. It's the end of the victim card. It's the end of bitterness. As the Father has loved the world. As He loved His own Son. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. One of, this great, one of the great prayers of the Scripture. Ephesians 3, he says... I pray that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you would be rooted and firmly established in love, and you may be, have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love. Not have the ability to understand his love, not have the intellect to understand it, not even have the eloquence to describe it, 
but have the power to grasp his love and to know that it's massive, how high and long and wide and deep is the love of Christ. When we know we're loved like that, we can finally, finally be united. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you make us into the kind of church that is an answer to this prayer of Jesus? Lord, it's, it's, it's all too rare to experience that kind of unity. Unity a, a, across disagreement. A unity across generational lines. Unity across socioeconomic lines. Unity ac- across racial lines. It's too rare, Father. But our cry is, Lord, we want to be those kinds of people that are united not, not on our worship style, not, on, not in, on our ethnicity, not on anything other than on Jesus and his gospel, his word, his work in us. So set our hearts on fire with your great love, Father, so that we would know that you love us with the same love that you have for your son. Father, would you give us the gift of repentance today? Father, some of us in this room, as your word's gone out today, have probably felt a, a tug in the heart and say, well, I've judged others or I've, I've looked down on others. I'm harboring bitterness towards someone in this room. I'm not living in unity. I'm, I'm sticking to my own kind. Father, would you make us one? Give us the gift where to repent, to turn away from the things we need to turn away from, to confess the sin we need to confess, to let it go, and then the power to forgive. Grant us power to forgive based on the forgiveness of Christ of us, that we may forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. So even in these moments of connection time, Father, may there be moments of power and reconciliation and love, and true embrace, and true connection, and true unity, and true love. So work in us. Receive our worship. We ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.